Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, keeping consistent cybersecurity communication between the Pentagon and industry. It's not even that hard to keep up with what new recommendations should be. Uh, What's hard is to promulgate that across the hundreds of thousands of companies in the defense industrial base. And how IT modernization is allowing the National Cancer Institute to accelerate cancer research. The more we can give that technology work to the cloud providers, the more all of our staff can understand the mission. It's Monday, January 10th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the guest host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Francis Rose is out today. Here's what's happening now. The Department of the Air Force office that awards small contracts to tech companies has a new director. Major Amanda Rebhe is taking the reins of AF Ventures, which is part of the Air Force's AF Works. Rebhe worked previously as a transfer acquisition manager at AF Ventures. The Joint Artificial Intelligence Center is creating a new position to lead AI Assurance. Jane Pinellas will take on the role in a part-time capacity and will report directly to Jake Director Lieutenant General Michael Groen. Pinellas previously served as the center's first chief of test and evaluation. It's not too early to plan for IT Mod Week. It's coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events will happen around D.C. with lots of government and industry speakers. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Pentagon has released the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Assessment Guide for Level 1 and 2 requirements after simplifying the CMMC model. Francis spoke with Core 4 CEO and former Department of Defense Chief Information Security Officer Jack Wilmer about what's next for companies in the defense industrial base. Um, you, you know, to me, CMMC has always been about trying to drive increases in cybersecurity in the defense industrial base and ultimately across uh, the entire base of contractors supporting the federal government. Um, I, I think that the real push now is, is regardless of whether or not you choose to get certified, it's about becoming compliant with those NIST standards. Uh, that's been something that uh, in most contracts have had as a requirement for years now, uh, being compliant with the NIST 171 cybersecurity standards. Uh, and frankly, a lot of companies, the way they've been compliant is to just have a plan of action and milestones that says, you know, at some point in the future, we will become compliant. Uh, and so therefore, they give themselves a checkbox. And so uh, really where I would focus uh, and where I've had my own company focused is trying to make sure that we're really making progress on those. Uh, now that NIST 172 is out, the more advanced uh, cybersecurity standards, really trying to make sure that we've become really compliant with those standards, not just having a plan to do so at some point in the future. Yeah, the advantage, it strikes me, is to be able to say in your proposal, that you're already compliant and here's the evidence that we're already compliant and and ready to do whatever the department requires of us in the future instead of saying yeah we'll get to it i mean that's that's the way that it looked to me when it when when matthew travis framed it that way yeah and i and i think that's exactly accurate i mean i think that you know, to the extent that that is an evaluation criteria in proposals is going to be obviously up to the government and how much sway that holds. And so if they signal that uh, that is something that the Pentagon is, as uh, Department of Defense looks to evaluate procurements is going to take into account, I think that's tremendously useful uh, and supports really uh, reinforcing good behavior uh, by industry. So uh, yeah, very supportive. What do you make of the next generation of security tiers? There were five, there are now three. Does it make that much of a difference? Is it, I mean, it's, I hear companies talk about the fact that, well, they're kind of moving the goalposts and all. Is it really that big a deal, Jack? 
It, you know, I'll, I'll tell you it's not, uh, in my opinion. So uh, when we originally rolled out, level one is the exact same as level one has always been, which is the base 17 cybersecurity requirements that I think has always been contractually required. Uh, when you look at level three, that is effectively NIST 171. That's the exact same as what uh, level three was uh, under the old model, and now is, I guess, level two in the new model. And then, frankly, level five is where you are dealing with controlled technical information, some of the more sensitive information the government has, and where we really want companies to step up their game. Um, part of the benefit is when originally CMMC was designed, there was no witnessed 172. Uh, there was an appendix that we were looking at trying to add to 171. Uh, that's now been published as NIST 172. So we have a formalized standard to be able to hold companies accountable to. So I think that as we now have uh, effectively those three levels are what we originally envisioned uh, as the kind of major aspects of CMMC. Uh, and so just simplifying it and having it as those three, um, you know, to me aligns very cleanly with the standards that are out there. And I think the original vision was to, Kind of map it to CMMI uh, so that people could really understand, uh, you know, how those things tied together. But I think that now the new model with aligning it to the cybersecurity standards uh, and very cleanly and clearly doing that makes a lot of sense. Is there a worry that you detect in among your peers and colleagues, or should there maybe be a, a thought at least that at some point in time this could change again? We went from five to three. And is it possible that this will continue to evolve? If so, is that necessarily a bad thing? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, realistically, um, when you look at the change that's happened, it's to align to the cybersecurity standards a little bit more closely. Uh, I What I expect and hope will happen is that the cybersecurity standards themselves will continue to evolve and that uh, as a result, the CMMC model should uh, try and keep up with those standards as they evolve. So I think that's a very good thing uh, that as threats evolve, uh, our standards need to evolve. Uh, but I'll also say that a lot of the practices are just basic general good practices. Having uh, the ability to detect when something bad is going on in your network, having a process uh, for how you respond to incidents, those types of things, no matter how the threats evolve, you need to have some capability and capacity for taking those actions. Uh, and so I think those are the foundational aspects that no matter how they change the certification are, are still going to be required. What did you and your colleagues in the Pentagon build into this to allow for changes in the threat landscape? Because this is calling for a, a review every three years for these companies. And I wonder, there, you certainly know better than I do how the threat landscape changes over that period of time. Um, what does this look like in order for companies to continue to meet the spirit of this, which is to have their networks defended against uh, people trying to penetrate them? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, that's a that's one of the biggest challenges that we have in government, because I think to your point, we understand absolutely how the threat landscape evolves. Um, and it's not even that hard to keep up with what new recommendations should be. Uh, what's hard is to promulgate that across the hundreds of thousands of companies in the defense industrial base uh, and to counter a notion of moving goalposts. And so I think that uh, part of the reason why aligning with the standards that are published through NIST is important is that uh, even though those are not able to evolve as quickly as, frankly, I would like, um, it, it does involve feedback from industry. It involves a lot of key stakeholders to make sure that as we change those standards, um, that that we're able to, um, you know, do so at a pace that industry can keep up with. 
I think that having, um, you know, one of the things that I would look at is to be able to put out effectively more advanced guidance so that, you know, and, and maybe even as a voluntary basis where you could have, you know, in the future, three years from now, a level three plus where maybe NIST 171 hasn't quite evolved yet, but we pick a couple of the standards from uh, 172 and say, hey, of everything, these are probably the most important next things to focus on uh, and allow industry to really uh, lean forward and trying to keep it. You can read more about CMMC 2.0 in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Billy Mitchell sitting in for Francis Rose on the Daily Scoop podcast. For more of the latest from Washington, follow the Daily Scoop podcast at Daily Scoop Pod on Twitter and search the Daily Scoop podcast on LinkedIn and Facebook. The National Institutes of Health's National Cancer Institute leads the nation's research efforts to improve cancer prevention, detection, diagnosis, and survivorship. NCI's Chief Information Officer Jeff Schilling explains to my colleague Wyatt Cash how data-led migrations are clearing the way for NCI researchers. It pretty much goes uh, the way you described it. You, um, you traditionally would move a, a system to the cloud, and that system would contain uh, capability, an analysis or data entry component, and it would contain a data component. Um, but uh, the Nash, at the National Cancer Institute, we had a unique situation where we had a lot of data, some very standardized data that was developed. Uh, for example, the, the Cancer Genome Atlas, it was it's basically a set of very standardized data that could be used by other researchers. So it's very mission-driven, but I think it's very, uh, very similar to how a lot of um, groups who would do any kind of data analysis, they would have their own sets of standardized data. And uh, we fund a lot of researchers. So uh, we were struggling with how do we get this large multi-petabyte data set to all these researchers? And we created a a set of have and have nots. The small research institutes couldn't get the data and the large research institutes could, and they were at an advantage. So we, we created a, a, we call it the cloud pilots at the t- time, and now it's called the cloud resources. But we moved all that data into the cloud, into several different clouds, created a structure around it, mainly around data curation and data standardization, and then created a set of uh, a very basic tools so researchers could come in, bring their data in, and, and analyze the data against those standardized data sets. So I think that really fits in kind of what you were saying, rather than, rather than think about um, the, how we function as a FISMA model where we have systems, um, we, we basically kind of broke with that because we didn't really have any universal system that we wanted people to use. We had kind of universal data. I get that. Well, next, how has the ability to migrate and analyze data in the cloud actually helped improve decision-making internally at your organization? I think what uh, the first thing that comes to mind is right away, the recommendations were, we want more of this. So the ability, uh, the first data we put in there was genomics data. So it, it, it was a, it's, a, it's very important for cancer research that, to be able to analyze um, a tumor's genome and or even single cell genomes against kind of these standards. And so, um, uh, but right away, the, the researchers came back and they basically said, we need other standards. So we need imaging data, we need um, pathology data. So, so I think the um, right away that said, okay, it's a success because um, 
People are generating publications from this. So the metrics that we use for success, uh, as, well, as well as, of course, we track long-term cancer health and cancer survivorship and cancer incidents. You know, we want, we ideally don't want anybody to get cancer, much less have to cure them, right? So mm. prevention is a, bi- is a big piece. And then uh, we also started measuring who was getting access to these data sets. And we saw that was growing and growing. And the, the thing that I mentioned, the haves versus have-nots, we were able to m- m- change the granting process a little bit so that, so that people could compete on a more even playing field. You didn't have to be at a big university or cancer center. You just had to be innovative and then you could get access to those data sets. So I will say though, if we were, if we were to say, um, uh, if we were to say how it really changed, it really moved us into the mindset of being more digital. Healthcare is not really always digital, right? You, 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 the doctor uh, palpate something. They feel something. They take maybe they take your temperature. That's digital. They they measure your weight. That's digital. But a lot of things are done visually. And so, the idea is that we can start to describe cancer in a digital way. That mm-hmm. that's I would say is the the big breakthrough that that's really going on and is is going to be going on for fifty years. I'm sure. Really interesting. Well, next, let me shift gears a little and ask, how did working with a leading cloud provider and also this community of cloud partners speed up the quote unquote time to value in improving constituent services? It's so large, it's hard to describe, I would say. I mean, the the ability to have infrastructure that you can count on, uh, that's cost effective, that has very knowledgeable staff running it and a whole cadre of people you can consult with on how to implement in it. Uh, it it's hard to describe to the people who really don't work in the cloud how much of a chain, change it is. And I'm not saying that because of the idea of the cloud, but the cloud vendors have done such a fantastic job in, in producing a product that's nearly flawless, right? If something goes down, it's like Netflix was down for five minutes. Uh, you know, the, the web was down for whatever. Email was down for an hour. That used to happen every month when stuff was on-prem. Now it's a, it's a it's newsworthy event around the country when something like this happens. And so um, the, the other thing I think is that they're so innovative. They're constantly driving innovation. I, I sometimes will say we're in the golden age of the cloud. Because right now we have just the right mixture of innovation, competition, nobody's won yet, right? I mean, we have the big players, but still there's a lot of competition and there's so many new things happening all the time. Every time there's a problem, it gets solved. And, 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 and so um, I would say the only problems we have are just keeping up, keeping up with it. it it's very, very, um, it's very dynamic. Uh, and getting staff who, you know, getting staff in who actually know enough about it to actually create something that's cutting edge. But those are great problems to have, right? Those are problems that you want to have. And um, I, I've, I, will, I will say, I have tried to communicate this to people, but I just say, it's, it's amazing. You could take it for granted that all this just works. You can just you can literally say, Jeff, I'm going to have this meeting with you at 3.30 and poof, it just happens. We don't even have a contingency plan, nothing. 
we just have a three third, a half hour window to do this, to do this conversation. Yet we have such great experience in this happening at a very reliable level that we, we just say, Hey, this is, this is good to go. It, it, it is a, is a, is a big thing to bank a lot of our resources on. It, we, we can say that we took for granted the supply chain. And now with the supply chain, all of a sudden, a little out of kilter, who like all of a sudden manufacturing, everybody's waiting for goods. So, so those kinds of things, I think the, the cloud providers have really thought through really, really well. Great point. And then maybe lastly, how have efforts in migrating and analyzing data in the cloud changed your organization's overall cloud strategy and priorities? Well, I would say, you know, we, we now have adopted a cloud first model. So we really look at um, every, every idea that comes in, every new uh, uh, request for services, they can be just um, administrative processes, how we run the institute, the granting process. All of that is done now with a cloud first mentality. It's a shakeup because you have a lot of people who have a lot of capabilities for how we previously did work. And sometimes it's hard to explain why the additional difficulty of doing something in a cloud first model, because um, we can't always roll it out as quickly, even though um, even though it might you might think that, well, the cloud is faster, it's virtual. It's like, right, but all that has to be configured. And in and, and the on-premise model, a lot of stuff is already pre-configured and ready to go. It's just not very flexible. And so the thing though, what we're, what we're really trying to do is we're really trying to get away from being an organization in my IT organization. We don't want to be an organization that works with technology. We want to be an organization that works on the mission. And so the more we can give that technology work to the cloud providers, the more all of our staff can understand the mission. They can understand our executive officer needs to improve how our acquisitions are done. Our HR staff need to hire more people, need to do more predictive analytics. Who, who really do we think is going to be retiring and how do we prepare for that? If my staff are configuring servers or you know, building storage arrays or troubleshooting all that stuff, they, they don't have the time to work in the, in the mission space. And so to me, that's the really, that's our real mantra. We want our staff working in the mission space, not in the tech space. And because we can buy the tech space, right? I can't buy the staff who know the mission because it takes a long time to understand that. So I would say that's really been our, that's really been our, it's been our thrust for the last few years, but it really is a long-term, probably a 10-year change in how we do the work, how we get the, even the staff to think about, not just my staff, but even the scientific staff and the administrative staff to think about how we do things. The only thing I would say that's the downside to this effort is there are so many cloud tools. We have to have much more governance around this is the tool set we're using. Yes, I know there's a million other great tools out there, and I know those other tools are good, but we can't be successful if we have too many solutions to the same problems. We, we really want to, we really want to uh, kind of limit that. And that's maybe something new for us too. You can find the link to the full interview with Jeff Schilling in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. 
James Mahoney helps put this show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back with a new show Tuesday afternoon. Until then, I'm Billy Mitchell, sitting in for Francis Rose on the Daily Scoop podcast. Thanks for listening.